We want to finish a three-part series on the Apostle Paul's praise for Trinitarian redemption. Uh, We began in verse 3 and have been marching down through. We'll uh, spend our last moments today in the the, uh, last few verses of that section of Scripture. But as you look at a whole of this, uh, this long sentence. I was thinking about news stories, I, though I don't get the, uh, have uh, a TV subscription, you can get uh, news on, on the internet, and whatever's going on, shaken down in the day, uh, is all they're talking about. I remember years ago when I came home from seminary classes on 9-11, and there was only one thing that was the news feature of that entire day and even the days to follow. There was virtually no story except for the terrorist attacks. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul presents the greatest news story to ever be consumed with as he traces the plan of salvation in eternity past in the mind of God to the present experience of those who have turned from their sin and embraced Christ and reaching on into eternity eternity future into our glorified states. He traces that from the mind of God and commemorated in all of eternity. And he tells us the story. It just gets bigger and wider and deeper than we could possibly imagine. It takes uh, the uh, form of three stanzas or movements, just like any symphony of praise. We've been looking at the believer's experience and present standing in Christ of being blessed with every spiritual blessing. The blessing primarily attributed to the Father choosing us, that's uh, verses 3 through 6, The blessings from the Son of redemption, verses 7 through 10, and now as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, verses 11 to 14, as the Spirit applies the benefits of Christ's saving work. So though we're going to be consumed with the study of verses 11 to 14 to gain the the context and be reminded of where we've trod thus far Begin uh, reading with me in verse number 3. Follow along as I read for us this grand eulogy of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And notice 
where we'll find ourselves the rest of our time together in Him, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And after reading that, God's people can only respond with amen and amen. So be it. The plan of the Father, redemption of Christ, and the certainty, the guarantee of the Spirit. One uh, pastor had, was, was sharing how that uh, in, in just the overflow of his ministry and experience in uh, life of having the privilege to teach God's people like we have the privilege to do week after week here at uh, Newtown Bible Church, uh, when, when you, you teach people in various settings, you, you face people who can look at life with a sense of foreboding and they're wondering if they'll ever find fulfillment for their lives, and they wonder if they will turn out to be what they could be if everything just went right. Well, this uh, pastor records at, at one of those teaching venues um, at a uh, Christian camp. He, he said, I met a young man with a severely withered arm and leg. He always stayed at the back of the group or in a corner by himself, never participating with the other campers. On the second day, I went over to him, introduced myself, and asked his name. He responded with a bitter scowl, pulled up the sleeve that covered his deformed arm, and said, look what God did to me. After silently praying for God's wisdom, my response was, would you like to know something? That's not you. What do you mean it's not me, he retorted. He said, it's just the house you live in. That's all. It's a very temporary house, but you're a forever person. God offers a forever plan for you and also a new and eternal body for your future. You're kidding, he said. No, I'm not kidding, I replied, and then shared the gospel with him. He recounts how that that day this young man who scowled at him was captivated by the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, and he bowed his knee to Christ. And then as response after uh, responding to the gospel call was for this pastor to go play ping pong with him. (laughs) It seemed in those moments not to be embarrassed, not to be bitter as he participated in that spiritual endeavor of ping pong with the guy that shared the gospel with him. Kind of manifesting in a poignant way that when somebody is captivated by the gospel of Christ, your whole outlook in life changes. It takes on a new meaning. Even these Christmas carols that we sang this morning, if you are a worshiper of Jesus Christ, you've been brought near by faith, you notice that it's a different expression than it used to be as an unconverted person because it's an expression of worship to our only wise God. In this uh, passage before us this morning, Paul shows us an awesome and wonderful potential of Christian believers, that for which every person 
in one way or another yearns. You know, in, in one way, we already possess all of what these, these benefits that Paul's been uh, talking, but it's going to far be surpassed than our human perspective. When, uh, you know, when this young man understood that he was part of God's eternal plan and received those eternal promises, it gave him an eternal perspective. And I trust that that would be the same response for us this morning. Uh, God promises and God delivers on those promises. Government, parents, friends, other people offer promises and sometimes uh, unintentionally they don't follow through on promises and yet we are given the Spirit as a guarantee. So in conclusion of the longest recorded sentence in the Bible... Let me invite you to glean two certainties to bolster your confidence in God's plan, leading us to greater depths of worship of God, especially appreciation for the Spirit of God, our present comforter. Certainty number one, mark it down, because He chose and predestined us, verses 11 and 12. Because He chose and predestined us. This this, uh, theology, this understanding brackets the section uh, as we saw back in verses 4 to 6, God's choosing, His predestination. Paul explains it a little bit uh, uh, differently here in verses 11 and 12. He uses a different word. Uh, You'll notice the the word translated in verse 11 as obtained is... Uh, in, the, in the Greek, it's klarao. It's, it's still speaking of this choosing that he'd already introduced that the Father did in eternity past. Uh, it's a common word for something obtained by lot. I don't know how often you have studied the effectual call of God, the first work of the Holy Spirit referred to here in verse 11. Upon an initial glance, you might think he's saying the same thing that he said back in verse 4, the eternal election of believers to salvation. But here, he's carrying the story, this, this expression of praise, a little bit further than what he had done earlier on. In this gift-given season, some people have been asking, well, uh, what do I buy? Well, you better, and uh, if you dare ask me that, I'll give you a big long list. But, uh, you know, on my uh, uh, list, I think a year or so ago, I'd picked up a new systematic theology by Michael uh, Bird. And in that, where he is recording, like many of these systematic theologians will help us put our arms around a given doctrine, like the effectual call to, to uh, understand it as distinct from that which took place in eternity past. And uh, when we're trying to think through the, the various aspects of salvation, and we talk about the order of salvation, how it all plays out in God's plan... It starts off in predestination, right, that we'd already studied. And then you've got calling and, and regeneration, born again by the Spirit of God, where there's, there's faith and repentance, there's justification, and it, uh, the, the work of the Spirit in transforming the life of the convert, and then eventual glorification when we will be 
in uh, practice what we are fully in position. So in uh, Michael Byrd's Systematic Theology, as he's reflecting upon this grand doctrine of the Spirit's effective call in our life, he says in Romans 8.30, following predestination, Paul adds that believers are, quote, called, there's our word. This call represents the implementation of God's determined ahead of time plan, i.e., foreknowledge, predestination that we had discussed a couple of weeks ago. Mediated via the summons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Calvin wrote, quote, For the elect are brought by calling into the fold of Christ, not from the very womb, nor all at the same time, but according as God sees it fit to dispense grace, unquote. He says those whom he called, in Romans 8.30, are precisely those in 8.28 who are said to have been called according to his purpose. To call, then, is the outworking of God's electing purposes. Importantly, the call here is is not a general invitation for all people to believe in Jesus Christ. Rather, the specific call is what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of people as they hear the gospel and are brought to the point of conversion. Accordingly, this call designates God's action whereby He summons and brings people to Himself through the gospel. A good example of what this looks like is Luke's account of Lydia's conversion during Paul's ministry in Philippi. We're told the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, Acts 16, 14. The call of Lydia was affected through the quickening of her heart as occasioned by Paul's preaching of the gospel. And so what God had done in eternity past, he will bring to play in the present experience of people in their lives. So now in the chronology of time, God chooses the chosen, working out His purposes in their particular lives. It's accomplished as He opens our eyes to understand. You don't know when that's going to take place, so you keep preaching the gospel like some of you over Thanksgiving. We're reading the Bible to your unbelieving family. You don't know if that's going to be the time that God uses to convert a soul through just the reading of Scripture to them. He opens our eyes to understand what Christ has done for us. God causes salvation, and it's not apart from our faithful proclamation of the gospel. He grants faith to believe on Him. He moves our will to embrace Him as our personal Savior. Because apart from Christ, all that man can receive is condemnation for our rebellion to the divine standard. And apart from the Spirit, the world crucified Christ. So he was, he was sent to convict the world of sin. Uh, put in your minds or in your notes here what Jesus said that the, the work of the Spirit would accomplish in time. In John 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus said, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So here we've got the Spirit sent to enact the work of salvation that Christ has accomplished. 
So as Paul reflects upon and gives praise and thanksgiving to God for the uh, for eternal redemption, he says that uh, we we've obtained an inheritance. Obtained an inheritance. Now you'll notice how in the if you're reading along in the New American Standard, like uh, like I just read for us, we've obtained an inheritance. Uh, many translations uh, translate the, the the phrase this way. Like it's the believer's inheritance. Uh, many comment, some some commentators like Charles Hodge and others translate it the same way. The ESV, I know many of you read out of that, or the, or the King James. But if you've got a NASB, you notice that there's a little uh, a little footnote uh, on that verb that we have. Well, who's got the having here? God's people or God? Uh, it depends on what translation, English translation you're toting with you. I think it's better to understand this phrase not as speaking of we have in the inheritance of believers, but he have in the inheritance of us. God's inheritance in believers. In other words, we were made an inheritance. We're Christ's inheritance. Back in 1901... We got the American Standard, which translates this phrase this way. The 20th century New Testament translates it this way. So this passive verb here of have may not be referring to us, but to God in reference to us who have believed. This passive verb can be taken either way grammatically. It can be taken either way theologically to stay consistent with the New Testament. For instance, if you take it the way the New American Standard has it translated, that we have obtained, well, Peter attests to that in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, that we've obtained an inheritance imperishable and undefiled. So that's theologically consistent with other passages in Scripture. But if we were to take this as we are Christ's inheritance, that we were made an inheritance by God, for God, Jesus repeatedly spoke of believers as gifts from his Father, did he not? If you wanted to jot down some uh, references just from John's gospel account in, in John 6 and verse 37... John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Over in uh, verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, capital H there, speaking of the Father, given to the Son, given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Over in uh, chapter 10 and verse number 29, Jesus says, my Father, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Chapter 17 and verse number 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Verse 24 of chapter 17. Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, 
for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Remember how we've already noted in this uh, prolonged sentence in Ephesians 1, the, the God-centered nature of it, yeah, that salvation starts with God, continues with God, concludes to His glory. Man-centered presentation, I think, would... Uh, uh, mo- most commentators take this phrase, this, this, this verb, have, as speaking to God, having obtained an inheritance in believers that He's redeemed for His own glory. Um, so what we need to do is study Scripture and recognize the ultimate purpose. Salvation is for God, not man. Though we benefit greatly, we all give a hearty amen and gratitude to God for accomplishing for us what we could not do left to ourselves. And the aim, as the next verse clarifies, is that through believers, God's glory might be seen and adored. You wonder, well, why have we spent a couple of moments developing this if it could be taken either, either way grammatically or either way theologically? Because I think that uh, our default setting, setting is, uh, has often been to be more man-centered than God-centered. And so uh, the way that typically will play out in man-centered evangelism is a proclamation of God loves you so much that he died for you. Emphasis on you. Or in uh, uh, contemporary worship, oftentimes the way this comes out is there's, I don't even remember the name of the song, but some contemporary chorus that ends with, he thought of you above all. Uh, What a horrible theology. Um, Yes, he thought of man. He sent his son to die for sinners such as us, but it's of him and for him and to him. We must never bring him down to man. Notice again what Paul says here that, uh, you know, that uh, we've, we've obtained an inheritance or God's obtained an inheritance in us, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So as we as you think about God's doing and God's, God's planning before the doing... The apostle clearly and emphatically shows that God, God's not constantly reacting to events as they unfold. The, uh, uh, when he sent his son to be born of a virgin, he knew that the cross was coming. This isn't God trying to constantly react to what's going on and unfolding with various countermeasures. He's carefully designed a plan that he's revealing and he's fulfilling. That clear and undeniable, unalterable plan is expressed with three words so that we can't miss. His purpose, his counsel, his will. What good would it be in eternity past to plan a redemptive plan but not be able to bring it to pass or to have it all hinge on man. So Paul reminds that the plan of God is backed by the power of God. He does call people to saving faith. He's going to, as he he predestines according to his plan, he's going to work all things after the counsel of his will. 
the power of God backing up the plan of God. He formulated the plan in eternity past and continues to work out that plan. We would do good to learn this principle in life and learn it well. That from eternity past, he declared that every elect sinner, though vile and rebellious and useless and deserving only of hell, who trust in his Son will be made as righteous as him. What a glorious reality. He had already said that back in verse 4. Remember the, the purpose of redemption. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That God can't just, doesn't just step back and, and plan it all, but He steps into dime to bring it to pass. The power to raise dead sinners to new life. To sanctify no matter what kind of ingrained sinful habits that they spent years captive by. William Hendrickson comments on this, uh, this passage. It's, it's helpful and concise. He, he says, Neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. The benevolent purpose that we should be holy and faultless, verse 4, sons of God, verse 5, destined to glorify Him forever, verses 6, and 12 and 14, is fixed, being part of a larger universe-embracing plan. Not only did God make this plan that includes absolutely all things that ever take place in heaven, on earth, and in hell, past, present, and even the future pertaining to both believers and unbelievers, to angels and devils, to physical as well as spiritual energies and units of existence, both large and small, He also wholly carries it out. His providence in time is as comprehensive as is His decree from eternity. So Paul reminds us, as we're looking at this glorious Trinitarian plan of redemption, as the Spirit calls to faith dead sinners, He works this purpose according to His counsel, His will, He works it. That term work, energuntos, sounds like uh, what it is, energy, uh, divine energy, uh, the power of God. He works everything according to his plan. You've probably heard it said before that there's no rogue molecule in God's universe. You're not the first and you won't uh, uh, start messing up his plan, neither will I. That it's going on on schedule, that's a good reminder uh, for people that are out of, out of work and struggling over life-besetting sins, that, that this doesn't catch God off. This expresses God's counsel with reference to His action. The Almighty will is displaying itself in action upon the moment of creation. You know what fits in really good here? about passage that probably many of you have memorized, many of you live in light of. This is kind of your hold-on-to verses through the daily grind of life, Romans 8, 28, and 29. You know, it's because of what we're looking at now in Ephesians 1 that Paul could elsewhere proclaim to the Romans and we could live in light of. 
knowing that God causes all things, how many things? All things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we'd be the firstborn among many brethren. Until that's done, he's not done. God created man as an image bearer to bring him glory. And though that image has been twisted, it's re-straightened and, and better pictured as he calls sinners to faith in Christ and as Christ is fashioned in their lives, as they grow into Christ-likeness. So notice the intent that begins verse 12, to the end, to the end, or so that, here's the so that of his argument. He does so for the pra- his own praise and his own glory. I'd love at this juncture to develop this more fully, that his glory is the manifestation of who he is in his essence, his majesty, his power, his holiness, his purity. But suffice it to say, as we get wrapped up with Paul in his eulogy and his thanksgiving to God for the incomparable plan of redemption, that the only response of redeemed humanity is praising his glory. We respond the only way we can respond in worship and adoration and grateful, holy service. That is a certainty. That as certain as the master plan of God is, and that he will work it out. So certainty number two. Certainty number one, we said, was because he chose and predestined. Certainty number two, because he sealed us with his spirit, verses 13 and 14. Because he sealed us with his spirit, Note that this is the final refrain of Paul's expression of praise that begins yet again with, in him, in him. Some suggest that this repetition has almost reached a monotonous point. I do not concur. Without him, we have nothing. We, without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, that we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the rule of this realm, indulging in fleshly deeds. Chapter 4, we're alienated from the life of God. So without him, it's nothing but enmity. In him, it's nothing but amity. To have everything, all the spiritual blessings. In him, we've got a new nature and position. So r- remember what we've, what we've looked at thus far, our, our position in Christ. Uh, uh, how about this election? Giving this new capacity, this nature to choose him to do his will from the heart. Of being adopted, heirs and co-heirs with Christ, with all the rights therein being redeemed and forgiving, even revealing of God's purpose in history, giving wisdom and insight that's tied to his revelation. And as he draws this package, this argument to a conclose, the sealing and inheritance that's guaranteed through the Spirit. 
So we must stress incorporation into Christ as the source of all these spiritual blessings because outside of him, none of it exists. None of it. So notice, before we get to the sealing of the Spirit, there's a little clarification that he makes uh, uh, jumping into verse 13 here. Uh, there's a, there is a listening or a proclamation of the exclusive Christ, the only saving gospel. And another clarification he gives in verse 13 before talking about the sealing of his own is that, that saving faith or belief system. So we're kind of changing our perspective. We're, we're looking at salvation's plan a little different here. We're looking from, from the human lens and human experience the human vantage point. So here again, we must admit, as we've mentioned before in this study, throughout Scripture, there's a tension between God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility. Just like many other antinomies and paradoxes in Scripture, what do we do? We preach the gospel to whosoever will may come. We preach the gospel because the, we, we know that faith comes from hearing, Romans 10.17. Without preaching the gospel, lost sinners are not going to get saved. And the more we grow and learn of our faith, we understand that it's man's response is to God's elective purposes. God chooses, God promises a salvation, and by faith, men receive it. You know, as you think about this tension in Scripture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I'd, I'd mentioned one of my newer systematic theology books. You don't find, typically find a lot of lightheartedness from, at the feet of theologians, but... Uh, uh, Dr. Dr. Bird was writing about this tension between uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, he, he says, A Calvinist arrives at St. Peter's gates and sees that there are two, two cues going on. One is marked predestined and the other is marked free will. Being the card-carrying Calvinist that he is, he strolls on over to the predestined cue. After several moments, an angel asks him, Why are you in this line? To which he replies, because I chose it. The angel looked surprised. Well, if you, ch if you chose it, then you should be in the free will line. So our Calvinist, now slightly miffed, obediently wanders over to the free will line. And again, after a few minutes, another angel asks him, why are you in this line? To which he solemnly replies, someone made me come here. So regardless of how we try to reason through the, the tension of God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility to re repent and believe, deny, to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Christ, we're not going to have the answers to all of it. It's not for us to figure out. You know, it intersects in the mind of God and in, in His hidden mystery. So you'll notice some, these two clarifications com coming into to verse 13 in him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The message or the word of truth. We rely 
as we go out and, and preach the gospel to people, we rely on the sovereign spirit speaking through his word because he never speaks apart from it. He never works apart from scripture. We'd mentioned that, uh, that some previously. So it's not a matter of using my, my pragmatic techniques and uh, my marketing strategies to, get, to find as many converts as we can um, or to remake the church so that unsaved Harry and Sally feel more comfortable worshiping with whatever we're doing at this table. It ought to be odd to them when the corporate body of Christ gathers in worship because this is otherworldly. This is the message proclaimed. Uh, Notice, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians. And this is the message they were to proclaim to a pluralistic religious environment on the west coast of Asia Minor. Imagine how exclusive and narrow the message must have sent in all of their Artemis religion and the false religions all around them that you preach the Christ. Because back up in... Uh, um, you know, we've, we've got an, uh, an article speaking of the, the, uh, the Christ, the Messiah... There's no other one who redeems sinners. And here we've got the message of truth. Doesn't matter if you're on MSNBC being quizzed about why the slaughter in in Sandy Hook. We've got one message to preach hope. How can we get to the cross and whatever question they're asking you? Because there is hope and it's only found in the Christ. In that one message, Paul frequently spoke of the gospel as the truth. He proclaimed this to the Colossians in uh, Colossians 1.5. As he confronted the, the, the heresy, he didn't try to remanufacture the message. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. We only know how to do one thing. As those that have been redeemed, brought near, those that have been forgiven our sins, it's one message. And so they there in Ephesus were to turn to Christ from other religions. And that hasn't changed today, 2,000 years later. This is more than offering a dumbed-down gospel of just adding Jesus to your life with no mention of the holiness of God that we've offended or the absolute necessity of repentance or denial of self and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You might wonder, well, Pastor Parker, why, why are we making such a, a, a big deal about it? Now, just recently, I was talking with some some church planters, and we see all of these little plants uh, popping up all over the place because everyone wants their, their brand uh, represented in every town. And if we go out with uh, a less-than-saving message that just pray this prayer after me and whether your life changes or not, it's up to God. You know, hundreds are going about with an anemic gospel an anemic view of the called out ones, the church of Jesus Christ, those that are truly saved. 
Many going about just to get people to mouth words after them and dubbing them automatically because they pray the prayer with them, dubbing them converts, and then putting them into positions of of leadership, even if it was just a religious experience, but not a born-again experience. Or teaching Sunday school. And then carrying out less than substantial Bible exposition in those churches. No discipleship counseling. How to, uh, what, what goes on in a lot of churches and a lot of ministries, quote-unquote, is a replacement of the Word, the Word of truth, the message of truth. We've only got one message. It's the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. People can say all they want as you come to Ephesians 1 and say, you know, that, that uh, you know, whether they use the terms Calvinism or doctrines of grace, it's the gospel. And they try to say, well, that stifles evangelism. That's, that's a false argument. God's predestination of believers motivates evangelism since we know God's Word does not return to Him void. It will accomplish the purpose. It might not have the kind of results we're looking for, but God will use the faithful proclamation of His truth as we use the Word, that which is living and active to convert the soul and to sanctify these new converts. I've referred to J.I. Packer's Evangelism and Authority of God during this series, if I could quote him one more time. He says, while we must remember that it's our responsibility to proclaim salvation, we must never forget that it is God who saves. It is God who brings men and women under the sound of the gospel, and it is God who brings them to faith in Christ. Our evangelistic work is the instrument that he uses for this purpose, but the power that saves is not in the instrument. It's in the hand of the one who uses this instrument. We must not at any stage forget that. First, if we forget that it is God's prerogative to give results when the gospel's preached, we shall start to think that it's our responsibility to secure them. You know, if I could stop quoting him for just a minute, what, what usually goes along with the, the whole Romans road with the sinner's prayer thing is uh, after we get them to pray the prayer, we've got to give them these verses on assurance to assure them that they really got saved and never doubt. Well, we don't know if there's been a divine interchange by the Spirit of God of new life. And we're giving them verses on assurance if we don't know if it took place. He says, if we forget that only God can give faith, we shall start to think that the making of converts depends in the last analysis, not on God, but on us, and that the decisive factor is the way which we evangelize. Beloved, let's preach the gospel faithfully far and wide to whosoever will may come. Let's be bolstered in our evangelism that there's going to be a lot of obstinate hearts, a lot of deaf ears before there's one convert, let's leave the results to the saving one, God, because God's plan is met with His power. So let's do what we do, the message of truth. So he clarifies this, in Him, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, notice what else, this other clarification, having also believed Having believed, he's confirming that this is authentic, saving faith, which is a significant theme in Ephesians as well. 
Yeah, salvation's forever. Salvation is guaranteed with absolute assurance and security. Well, let's make sure it's the real deal. That's all we're pleading for here. Let's do what Peter says to make your calling and election sure. Knowing that there's a wealth of false professions, a wealth of unconverted religious people populating buildings called churches. Let me ask you, beloved, did you truly believe? Did you abandon your plans for your life and your sin and entrust yourself to Christ alone, His perfect life lived and His substitutionary death that satisfied the Father's wrath? If not, don't partake of the table. Let it pass. Talk with us about the gospel after the service. Let the elements pass. Paul says, having heard and believed, there's the sinner's responsibility to respond. But he also speaks of the sovereign Spirit's work and without our participation. He gets into the riches of the Spirit and is twofold because we need that assurance. Most of our inheritance is far away. It's in the future. We don't immediately receive the fullness of all God's promises. Again, referring to Peter again, he says it's reserved there. While in this life, our redemption isn't complete, we await full possession. But to those who believed and those alone who have experienced saving faith, those who are born again, He sealed. Notice that at the end of the verse. You sealed in Him the Holy, Holy Spirit of promise. Let me remind you, when we, when we teach the Bible... We can't teach a whole systematic theology from any, any one verse. So as he, as he introduces us to the ministry of the Spirit, he doesn't tell us a lot, a lot about the Spirit's other working. We have to go elsewhere. And yet, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. We, we har- it harmonizes itself perfectly as we devote ourselves to careful, diligent study to learn about our, our helper, our advocate, who protects and encourages and guarantees inheritance in Christ. He bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Paul gets into that in Romans 8. That's not for today. He's our securing force, our guarantee, the silent shepherd making much of Christ. That's what he does. Don't make an assumption, but yet fill in what the rest of Scripture teaches about the Spirit. This is not the filling of the Spirit that he'll address in chapter 5 and verse 18 that's commanded of the believer to do, nor is it the baptism of the Spirit that he'll talk about in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Since preaching is public hermeneutics, I'm making this mental note for you, this verbal note. I mention these things because no member of the Trinity, as we've looked at the Father and we've looked at the Son, no member of the Trinity is more misunderstood nor misrepresented than the Spirit of God. I'm grading a couple of dozen essays on this very subject right now. I see regularly the mass pandemonium in regards to this member of the Trinity. Deal with the simple words used. He's not getting into a whole systematic theology of, uh, uh, of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit. He's just telling us a little bit about him. Paul links the coming of the Spirit with the exercise of faith. You have believed. It's crucial to his argument in this letter. 
We were the first to hope in Christ. You know, so in verse, verse 12, uh, we were the first to hope, uh, you know, generally, of, of, of Christians. And then verse 13, he talks about uh, you too. Later on, in, uh, he's going to flesh out in chapter 2 that the you's believing are Gentiles that have been brought near to. But those who believe, though, any who believe, any who are in Christ are sealed with the Spirit. There's a Greek nuance used to show the content of the sealing. Thus, the Spirit is the mark of ownership. He does the sealing. He is the sealing. God gives us a person as our guarantee, the Spirit of promise. He was promised to Israel, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. We're told about the new covenant and uh, there's going to be spirit indwelling in the new covenant that we experience. This is good news for the Gentiles that would be brought in. That He's made available in Christ to any who hear the message of Christ and believe. This is huge. He seals. Let me give you a couple of uh, significant aspects about this sealing ministry of the Spirit. Number one, it's a mark of ownership. And if you were to listen through Jewish ears to what Paul is telling us here, a mark of ownership in the ancient world. Uh, A seal was often made of hard stones or precious metals with a distinct image engraved on them, sometimes a deity or a portrait or a hero. Uh, if, if it was a document that was getting sealed, there would be hot wax with that imprint. All significant possessions would bear the mark. It didn't matter whether you were a slave or livestock. You were marked with a seal of your owner. Some of you uh, bibliophiles might have an embosser like me from the front, for the front uh, page of your Bible to emboss the pages to remind people you loan them out to whose home they go back to. It's that same idea here in the ceiling. Do you remember that in the Old Covenant, the priest would wear a seal engraved, Holy to the Lord. We're told that in Exodus 28.36 and 39.30. In the New Covenant era, the one true God has marked His people as belonging to Himself. And the Holy Spirit was sent in eschatological fulfillment of the promised gift of the Spirit. He would mark them down, owned by God, purchased by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Spirit. So there's that that nuance that is conveyed of ownership, but there's a second aspect of sealing, that being guarantee. Guarantee of correctness of the contents. This is what Paul would, would use in uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 22 as he's talking about the, the, the Spirit of God, who he sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Think about one way he might possibly work this out in the life of guaranteeing the correctness of the contents. You profess Christ. 
as he confirms his own, the process he'll use of confirmation of regeneration is holy affections, religious affections, as, as uh, Jonathan Edwards would refer to them as. That which is not natural to unbelievers, natural man, but is only a byproduct of the new birth, the new nature, because of the Spirit who's taken up residence. And he bears his mark of correctness that what you profess is genuine as he testifies and bears witness with your spirit that you're his. And a third nuance of this sealing is making something fast or secure. Secure. The basic gist is don't live contrary to who you are. Uh, One of the practical takeaways that he'll give us in chapter 4 and verse 30 when he commands believers, those who have been redeemed, brought near in Christ, he says don't grieve by living a life of sin. Don't grieve the Spirit. He's not going to bear witness that you're His when you're not acting like you're His. Since we've been saved to sin no more, we've been empowered to overcome sin through the Spirit. He's not going to confirm us in our disobedience. Yes, the truth of Romans 8.16 is is true. The Spirit testifies we're God's children. But He confirms that as we're walking in obedience and faith to Him as confirmed in Scripture. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones made such a big deal that this is the main ministry of, of sealing of the Spirit, that, that he wrote five chapters on it. Five chapters. So Paul says, if, if you're those who have believed, you've been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he gives us another term in the next verse. He's given as a pledge of our inheritance that the, 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 the best is yet to come, our future inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Since He's not done with you, He's not done with me. This person is our deposit. The term Erebon is also translated our earnest or promise. It was a deposit or down payment. The full amount will be paid. That's the Spirit to God's own elect ones. Given to show that even Gentiles are included in God's promise of salvation that He'll deliver. He'll go all the way. Not only marked by the Holy Spirit as owned by God, but empowered, this empowering presence to abide with us until that glorious consummation of the age. Remember back in chapter, uh, in, in verse, verse 5, that we were chosen and predestined to adoption for Himself. So to sum up, God's God's given us His sufficient Word. He's lavished us with His Spirit as a resource for living the Christian life all the way until we're glorified. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Teacher, the Advocate, the Homemaker who dwells within God's people illuminates our hearts with the fullness of Christ. We see Christ clearly now because... His companion, His Spirit resides within us. What a glorious reality for Paul to end his eulogy with. The significance of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Assuring us of present blessing and future hope. 
such lavish provision of an eternally wise and gracious triune God. Our, our responsibility as chosen instruments is to carry out His purpose in the world. He's redeemed, He's rescued us as His inheritance, His possession. We've been saved to be restored to the intended divine purpose of creation, His glory. Delivered from God's wrath and bondage to power and delivered from sin and the flesh. So the elect of God worship Him, boasting of His kindness, not our glory. We proclaim redemption and forgiveness to sinners. All to the praise of His glory. All that we have in Christ comes from God and returns to God, beginning in His will, ending in His glory. It's God-centered from beginning to end. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we, we're captivated with Your greatness, Your matchless eternal plan of redemption to be chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by Your Spirit. And so as we come to the table this morning, we reflect upon the glory of redemption and we give you all the praise, all the accolades, all the glory for accomplishing for yourself and the praise of your own great name, sinners such as us. We come as unworthy ones, worthy by Christ, clothed in his perfections. Might we take in celebration of the grandness of your plan of redemption. We pray In the name of Jesus, amen.